1: Hey guys, welcome to the Tap and Go. My name is Matt.
2: My name is Freddie. Each week we bring you your rugby fix with interviews with past and present rugby professionals. We get their views on the latest sporting issues. Hey guys, welcome back. Today we've got a very special episode for you as it's Tap and Go Christmas special. There's no way better to start a new series than with our Boxing Day episode. We're joined today by Broadcasting Royalty. He's a fellow podcaster and the face of Sky Sports Rugby. It's someone from the class above. It's Mr Alex Payne. How
0: are you, Alex? I'm alive. Thank you, gentlemen, which I think in <laughs> 2020 is um, is not a bad achievement at this point. Um, yeah. I'm all right. I'm pretty good. Nice to be chatting to you, too. And um, yeah, I can't complain too much, I think. How are you guys? Yeah, no, very well.
2: Um, well, thanks for coming on. And since it's Christmas, we thought we'd start with something a little bit different. I'll ask you a couple of quick Christmas questions. So answer as quickly as you can. What's your favorite Christmas film?
0: Oh, um, we. Regularly talk about this on the podcast. Is Die Hard a Christmas film? I don't know. I'll go um, Home Alone.
1: Home Alone. All right. Favorite Christmas food?
0: Uh, turkey.
2: Colin Firth or Hugh Grant? Hugh. Champagne or mulled wine? Champagne. Perfect. Right. We'll stop there before we get any more weird <laughs> questions. So obviously, <laughs> right. a big thing about Christmas is the Christmas number one. And you've been involved, I think, with one of the projects outcoming which Arch Curzon's been running. How was that? Can yes. you tell us a little
0: bit about that? Am I allowed to swear on this or not? Yeah, or are we a family show? Fucking dreadful. Short answer. Um, yes, I, I have been involved with Archibald Curse, not through any kind of, um, uh, not through any sort of willingness, I suppose. I, I mainly because he's raising money for a very good charity and restart rugby. But um, the man's an absolute prat and a total idiot, and sort of somehow seems to appear in my timeline and on my shows uh, without any sort of um invitation from me but um yeah some people seem to find him mildly funny I, I think he's he's an utter irritation but um no he he in all fairness he has done a very good job with limited ability to raise profile awareness and hopefully some valuable money for restart rugby which needs it more than ever before um and on that basis and on that basis only i was happy to do about two minutes work to help him with his cause that's enough of that
1: yeah, no. well I'm sure I was sort of like thinking the other day like comparing to sort of the um the we are the world with sort of Michael Jackson and his crew or was yeah. like a monkey version
0: yeah no nothing like that it was <laughs> um it was like a bunch of pub drunks out the back having a shing shong at the end of um at the end of a very good evening it, it yeah I mean uh, he is to be honest a phenomenon um uh, and you can read into that whatever you like. Um, he sort of seems to have this cult following. I don't know whether that says more about him or about those people that follow him, but, um, you know, <laughs> peas from different pods. Let's yeah. just leave it there.
2: Well, it's for a great cause, so fingers crossed it as well, and we can all raise a lot of money. For that he quickly.
0: did say, actually, and this is a world exclusive, he did say that if he reaches number one, um, he'd run around Clapham Common naked, and I've got that on a WhatsApp message. So at the appropriate moment, if sales are flagging, um, I will release that into the ether and um, perhaps that might find a couple of other people who put 99p down behind his debacle. Oh, I think you could find a lot of people willing no. to
2: donate for that pause. Yeah. Well, yeah. Obviously now I'm focusing sure. more on your career in presenting so obviously you went through quite a traditional public school upbringing and everything but then got into presenting <laughs> but unlike most you didn't have a professional you so. career yourself so how did you can you talk a little bit about how you went from almost straight out of school into presenting?
0: Yeah sure so I, I went to a school familiar to you 2 and played a a bit of rugby it's not it's not a terribly strong rugby school but we had we had a good time and some great days um I then went to Edinburgh University which is a fairly well trodden path um and I played quite a lot up there as well actually I played n- never to any great level I played second division Scottish rugby for a club called Edinburgh Academicals I was pretty fringe um and sort of skipped about happily as a whatever it was 19 year old 20 year old student um and Loved it. I mean, I had a really, really good time out there. We played, played some quite fun intramural stuff as well. But um, I was keen but limited, I think is how I'd describe my playing career. Um, I was always a massive sports fan, like most kids who come out of, of school at that age stage. stage. Um, I watched everything, where a ball was involved, and sort of looked at various different things. I was going to potentially go into the army. I was potentially going to... I really wanted to become a sculptor, actually. There's a different story for another day um I was pretty limited at that as well but I I always had this massive passion for sport and I sort of remember you know kids of 18 19 sort of starting to embark on what is it I'm going to do when I grow up and I did a bit of advertising work experience and a few bits and bobs and off my own bat I wrote the sky and said look I'd love to come and do a couple of weeks work experience what chance and um I sort of had to do it two or three times and eventually the woman in charge of it said yeah okay well we can book you in for a March slot for a couple of weeks come and come and come and get stuck in and I was unbelievably lucky I actually started on Soccer AM back in the days when Soccer AM was an amazing sort of phenomenon in itself it's slightly tapered off at the fringe I'm quite relatively good mates with Max Rushton who I think is probably the bloke who killed it so um we laugh about that occasionally but um I, I ended up making wire legs on a friday for a saturday show and um it was it was the staple of sky sports at that point and um my passion was always in rugby i think i was the only person ever to get work experience in soccer and then asked to move out of it but i ended up in the rugby department it was 2001 it was pre-alliance tour and it just was, it was just mega absolutely incredible um and so my two weeks became four weeks um i stayed on and, and worked over and above and then actually said to the, the executive producer look if I'm in Australia can I be the, the gopher and the t-boy for you during the tour and he said yeah sure if you're out there come and work and we'll we'll look after you on, on game days and I spent my student loan at the time going to Australia with a couple of mates we drove up and down the east coast following the tour and I just was absolutely incredible. And the moment genuinely for me the fires were lit it was I was on, on the first test. This is way before your time, which is very depressing. But it was it was the first test between Australia and the Lions in 01 is a sort of fairly iconic game and, and the Lions played incredibly well. And about an hour before kickoff, I was meant to be sitting in a truck out at the back of the stadium pressing a button every time someone made a tackle. And the kit that I was meant to be using broke. And so there was there was nothing for me to do. And half an hour before kickoff, um, you know, and I was not much older than you two and a, and a proper sort of, you know, passionate fan about it. Someone just said, look, there's nothing for you to do. There's a pitch pass. Go and, go and watch it from the touchline. And I walked out into the Gabba in Brisbane on the day that any Lions fan who watched it will remember. I mean, the Lions fans turned that stadium red. And I was walking. I mean, it's actually funny enough. It makes the hair stand up on the back of my neck now. And I walked out in onto the stadium and I just was like, this is... I mean, this is the Holy Grail. This is this is what I want to do. Um, and I ended up sitting on a chair at the end of the lion's bench. I mean, it was the day that Jason Robinson lit up the pitch. You know, Driscoll scored his wonder try. And I just was like a 19-year-old kid, the classic pig in shit. And I I just at that point thought, whatever it takes and, and whatever opportunities I can engineer, this is what I want to do. It's, um, it's really good fun. Short and sweet. And so I went from T-boy four years later I was the reporter on Alliance tour and then four years after that I was presenting it so it kind of happened relatively quickly but um yeah it just it just lit a fire in me that uh, you know sometimes you've got to you've got to gamble and um and just just throw your eggs into it I went from five years of good school four years at a good university started earning 12 grand a year making tea and coffee at two o'clock in the morning on a tennis overnight but I think sometimes if you've got a passion you want to make it work you end up you end up getting lucky and being in the right place at the right time. That's a long-winded answer. Hopefully you can cut something out of that that works.
1: I mean, like, it's a totally different skill, isn't it? Sort of, like, playing the game and sort of, like, commenting or, like, talking about it and being on podcasts, like, friend and I have both sort of experienced over the past whatever months. But, like, did you sort of – so you were the youngest uh, presenter on Sky Sports. Did that sort of give you any nerves or were you sort of a bit jittery at the start, do you reckon?
0: What do you think? <laughs> I mean, I was – genuinely, I was 24 years old. and. um so off the back of that Lions tour in 2001, I went back to university for two years and I kept in touch with all the guys and the girls at Sky and I'd worked during my holidays. I actually worked much harder in the holidays for Sky than I, than I ever did at university. But I joined Sky a week after I finished my finals and I was making tea and coffee and, and, and mucking about. Um, and I went from t-boy to um, basically reporting on live rugby in about six months having never done any acting, any public speaking. I'd never done any training. I'd never had a screen test. I literally got given a, a microphone one, it, it was a Friday night and the game that we were covering was army against the Navy. It must have been about 2004. And the night before the game, the executive producer, who I think possibly knew that I was quite keen to get into, I kept my cards very close to my chest. I didn't want to be one of those people that walked in saying, all I want to do is present, all I want to do is report. And I had friends who I joined with at Sky who were very ambitious for their presenting career, but they never got picked up because you have to kind of go in at the bottom in television. You have to learn the terminology and you have to put in the uncomfortable hours and you have to do the crap jobs in order to then prove that you're there for the right reasons. And the reason I kind of say that is I've I've done that. I kept the cards quite close to the chest. I've done that long slog. And literally the Friday night before this Army-Navy came, the executive producer said, we have got a reporter tomorrow. Do you want to do it? And I was like, "Um, why not? And and I literally, I I remember that very, very clearly. The only way I can describe that first broadcast to you is it felt like I was tiptoeing along the edge of a cliff. And it was everything I wanted to be doing. And, um, you know, I, I was... So passionate about it, but one wrong move and one sort of moment of Tourette's and something, the whole thing is gone. And it was quite an extraordinary experience to handle. It was sort of quite out of body. Um, I was unbelievably lucky that I began my broadcasting career um, depressingly pre-social media. And if I had been ten years later, I just wouldn't be here now. I mean, I had so many cockups on air and, and just moments which now you'd absolutely you just wouldn't recover from it because it would be around the world and people would be you know your your career would lie in tatters um so yeah I was unbelievably nervous for a very very long time um and I can remember you know doing the Lions tour in 2005 and I, I didn't sleep for two or three nights before a one and a half minute pitch side cross with Stuart Barnes I'd just be like you know what if I get it wrong what if I get it wrong and you, know, you just you just find a way through it. And it's it's extraordinary. This isn't your question, but it is extraordinary how, like anything you do in life, once you start getting comfortable with it, um, I now just, I'm desperate for it all to go wrong. I really want things to break and people to fall over because that's the fun stuff. And that's when, as a broadcaster, you feel a bit liberated and you can start telling stories that are, that are fun. Um, and it's just extraordinary how I've gone from utterly, utterly terrified and totally over-prepped and wanting to know every single word that I'm going to say a week in advance of saying it. And now, I mean, the podcast we do is an absolute shambles, but it's literally press press record and, and see what happens. And and the weirder it gets and the more often it goes wrong, normally the better the show. But it's just an extraordinary journey to have been on. And um, it's part of the fun of it, really.
2: You talk about the cock-ups and mess-ups, honestly... One of your good, most famous go. ones, yeah, made yeah, it into the, yeah, I think it was yeah, came yeah. From number four at Sky Rugby moment, like funniest
0: moments. Good, yeah, you did well in the pre-match
2: full wasps. It was it a wasps game? I yeah. think.
0: Yeah. talk to a little bit bar. about that.
2: Sort of, as you were so very young there, did you get quite a lot of stick from that from the others?
0: Um, I can only really describe it as my Jean Van moment, which again won't mean very much to you, but he's the guy who was going down the 18th at the Open with a sort of seven-shot lead and managed to hit it three times into the burn and twice into the bunker and ended up losing. Um, I've been a broadcaster for 16 years now. And the third question, which is what you've asked and what anybody ever asks, is what the hell happened at Adams Park. Um I mean there's a long answer and a short answer. The short answer is that basically it's just incredibly complacent. We'd done a game the day before. Um, and the thing about live broadcasting is that you can be very, very relaxed with it, but it will always bite you on the ass when you're not expecting it. And we had done a brilliant show on a Saturday, and I felt totally and utterly on Top of the world. We did a game on the Sunday, and all I can remember is the, the bit I really enjoy, and the bit that's the most addictive is when you have in your ear, you've got right you're on air in 10 seconds, nine, eight, seven, six. That's the bit we think this is this is gonna be really good fun. And normally you're fairly sort of comfortable at that point. You've had a rehearsal and you're kind of you're aware of your surroundings and you're you're up to speed. All I can remember that day is the is the PA saying, right, we're on air in 10. Nine, and I was thinking, holy shit, I've got no idea what I'm doing here. I don't know, I, I'm, I'm, what, I've no idea what I'm doing here. And as I began to think, I'm totally and utterly sort of at sea, the, the tannoy behind me picked up, and this is excuses, the tannoy behind me picked up and all I could suddenly hear as I was thinking, I don't know what I'm saying, is just tannoy music in my head. And I, even if you stick your fingers in your ears and you talk, you can still understand what it is you're saying, but my balance in my ears was so out of kilter that even if I was talking, I had no idea what the words were that were coming out of my mouth. And so I can only describe it that suddenly I was on air with no idea what it was I was meant to be saying. I couldn't hear what it was I was saying. Um, And instead of sticking to the oldest rule in the game, which is just keep it simple, I tried to overcomplicate it. And I just sort of, I was like a car stuck in the mud. And the more I revved to try and get out, the deeper it got and eventually I just was like yeah um hello guys and they were like what what on earth are you doing and I didn't really have an answer for it and I I was I was still on that point of my career where I was desperate to kind of prove myself I mean you mentioned the fact I was 24 when I started I looked 15 and that actually was it was a it was a proper proper challenge and I you know you work with some pretty grown-up alpha males who are kings of their sport and revered across the world I mean, the first rugby match i ever broadcast i was in studio with sean fitzpatrick michael liner bob skinstat and will greenwood and you know these guys were absolute heroes of mine and um i remember fitzy you know and it, that was an, it's another story but i was basically I was thrown on air with about seven hours notice and i had to broadcast a whole day of rugby um and i was absolute rabbit in the headlights and as we went on air and you got that 10 9 8 all fitzy did is, is lent over and went don't fuck it up mate and I was like (laughs) perfect okay great I'll try not to but it was it's that kind of environment I was way out of my depth, and the the point about Adams Park is I was still trying to work out who I was and and how I was broadcast I'm still sort of very formulaic um I look back on it now it's the best thing that ever happened because fundamentally what you realize off the back of it is none of it really matters so the sun still comes up and off you go
2: so obviously that was probably one of your least favourite interviews in the moment but can you ever think of one which sort of like stands out as being one of your most favourite interviews like one which you would do over and over again
0: that's a good question um, I think uh, the, the, we did quite an emotional one with Johnny Wilkinson with, when he played his last game for Toulon in the UK and that was the um, Heineken Champions Cup final against Saracens in Cardiff and that was a really nice interview it was a really nice moment Um and, and it had you know it was a, it was a big day that it was a big club day and loads of people watched Funny, probably the, the best interview i ever did was with again long before your time but back in 2007 at the rugby world cup i went out to um france to interview a guy called nicky little who was sorry i, don't it was killers. I went out to france to interview a guy called nicky little who was the fijian fly half um and they'd just beaten Wales—an extraordinary upset—and um, I took him out for a steak and, and said to the cameraman, "Just as soon as we sit down, just start filming. Don't, uh, we're not going to have a big right. Let's start and off we go." The extraordinary thing about sportsmen is that you can chat away really happily, and as soon as you go, right, let's start the interview. Up comes the drawbridge, and you just get media answers. And I said to the camera, "Just start rolling the camera, and we'll just we'll just chat and see where we get to." Um, and he and as a result, Nikki never realized that we were filming and and never realized that the interview had begun. And we ate the steak and we che- he just he just revealed the most extraordinary things about the group of guys he was playing with. Two-thirds of them had never left Fiji before. Um, you know, of that contingent, you know, loads had never been in an elevator before. And they were just so gobsmacked by this thing where you pressed a button and it took you up to the top of the building. And it was just it was just beautifully romantic it was fijian not like romantic between us just the romance of their story <laughs> was just, um, just an amazing interview and it just gave so much insight into the personalities and you know the cultural differences and um, you know it was all wrapped in this extraordinary underdog story of Fiji having beaten well so i I look back on that one and um, that was a great interview and, and more recently just I suppose with the podcast, Um, We've done some good ones recently. Sam Burgess was a big story for us. Um, We did some very nice stuff recently with Ben Kayser about the the very sad death of Christophe Dominici, Alex Corbusier and his cancer battle, Nigel Owens and his battles. Um, The nice thing about a podcast though, is you get the opportunity to do so much more because you're not time constrained um, and people sort of are, are very comfortable relaxing. Whereas in a TV environment, you know, it's so intense and there's so much mm-hmm. going on. You're so limited by time that it's it's much harder.
1: Yeah. So on that note of sort of like people that, people you interviewing people, is there someone that you'd like sort of love, like a dream interview, like dead or alive? Or like, is there like a specific moment, like after a certain match or sort oh of that God, you
0: are like... Very good. Sport related or anybody? Anyone. Anyone. Anyway, I got a really curious fixation with JFK and Jack the Ripper. I, I, I love i love a conspiracy theory um so i'd love to be able to dig into that a little bit at the same um, time why not yeah i mean let's, <laughs> let's let's lay a conspiracy theory on conspiracy theory um i've actually been to dealey plaza in dallas which was um which was an amazing day actually um that sort of digresses in terms of sport now i mean in, in all honesty i i've, I've I've been very lucky within rugby. I've I've interviewed all the people probably that I really want to interview. Um, You know, I I was lucky enough to do some quite fun stuff with Joe Nolomu, you know, Martin Johnson. I've sat down with quite a bit. You know, Johnny is always uh, a very interesting guy to talk to. He's got many layers and many thoughts. Um, Outside of sport, I mean, I, I, I fear that modern day sportsmen are, they're not the entertainers in front of a microphone that they once were. Tyson would be quite an interesting one. Mm-hmm. Um Muhammad Ali I, yeah i i i couldn't give you a really strong answer on that i mean i'm i've been very very lucky that i came into sports broadcasting as a fan and the more you do something sort of the the, the more that falls away so i'm i'm not i'm not nearly as big a sports fan as i once was partly because i've i've been to some amazing days and i've, I've sort of experienced it and lived it so um I've really got a very good answer. Who would I most love to sit down? I think Tyson would be quite an interesting guy to explore. I reckon there'd be some, some quite dark demons in there that you could get into.
1: Mm. So I guess, like as a sports fan, I like sort of like I'm quite interested with sort of like dynasties. Someone like Jordan with the Bulls, Derek Jeter with the Yankees, sort of like Tom Brady with Patriots. On do you think sort of like extra Chiefs? Like I know they've been in five Premiership finals. Wow, that's a segue. Player, do you think they have sort of? Do you think they can become sort of like a dynasty? like the previously mentioned
0: like the Chicago like the Chicago Bulls yeah. um well, uh, I think they can become a dynasty within rugby but is that a dynasty I don't know I mean you know rugby is a is a pretty small goldfish bowl and and we all paddle around and it's saying that it's um you know saying that it's an amazing kind of um Sport and it is, and we, we all love it, and we, we love it for, it for for all the reasons that we all know. But it's it's a pretty small sport at the same time. I would say that the All Blacks are a far bigger dynasty within sport um, than Exeter Chiefs will ever be. I think Exeter Chiefs are a great story, and I remember when I was you know, 24, 25, going down to um, you know the southwest to interview, and they were playing on a dog track in the middle of nowhere, and it was. I mean, they, I think they had a speedway track around the outside or something. It was just. I mean, it was, you know, they were a proper pub team and now they are the champions of Europe and the champions of the Premiership. Um, I'm just not sure the Premiership in its current guise will ever be big enough to sort of enable a team to be, you know, labelled as, as a dynasty. I just, you, you've got to be elevated and you've got to be playing at the very top table of, of world sport to be a dynasty. I think Exeter are an amazing club and a great story. Um, it's a bit like, I'm calling an old cynic, it's a bit like when... Excuse me, people are described as legends of the sport and, you know, we throw legend and great and all that kind of thing around pretty willy nilly. And if you work with someone like Stuart Barnes for long enough, he sort of turns you into a cynic in the way that he is. And um, I, I wouldn't, I, I think, yeah, I'm repeating myself, I think Exeter are a great club. I wouldn't mm. stick dynasty on them yet. Possibly ever, I think if, if you're ever looking for a dynasty in rugby, it's got to be All Blacks.
1: Any club teams that could become, or not at all, because it's not the same sort of competitive level.
0: <laughs> um, I I don't think within, I just I just don't think within in you know rugby up here in the, in the in you know UK is just it's just not a big enough sport. I mean, I think you could look at the Crusaders, you know, are they a dynasty or are they just a dominant force? I don't know. We're we're dealing in nuance, I suppose. Um, I think if you were to, I think Leinster got pretty close to dynasty with the three European titles in four years, um, and that's probably as 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 close as I'd I'd get to it. Um, Toulouse, possibly. Um, Exeter have certainly got what they need to to become a really really great club um but i just think you you need to be talking about sport where the world stops to watch in order to be if you dominate a sport which the world stops to watch you can consider yourself a dynasty if you're dominating a premiership in a european cup which you know people love but don't necessarily you know you you'd never see an exeter chiefs shirt in la and you'd never see do you know what i mean and i think in order to be a dynasty you know jordan was the most famous man on the planet and and that's because of his success i don't much i love jack Noel. i don't think you'd find a jack Nollshire shirt in in thailand or wherever it's going to be so i think dynasty is too heavy for it but i think they're a great club with a cracking story all righty guys it's that time again time to pay for the pint. Today's podcast has been
2: brought to you by our mates over at Team Blazers. A big shout out to them. The great British Blaze company kidding you out for every match day social. Check them out now. And so obviously we've just had the inaugural alternations Cup. And obviously that's not going to stick around. They've already confirmed that South Africa and everyone's coming back next. But do you think the format might stick around? The two groups potentially create a bit more um, excitement
0: in the autumns? I mean, I'm, I'm just so frustrated and bored of going around the, the sort of the calendar roundabout. Um, yeah, I, I think they were beginning to get somewhere with it. I think by the end, I don't think the rugby's been pretty average over the course of the autumn, but I think it's entirely understandable I mean, Then the players have, it's just been an extraordinary year of rugby for them. Um, I know that they are, des- World Rugby is desperately trying to build a sustainable competition where the money that comes into it is distributed out to the teams that are taking part, um, you know they're, they're desperately trying to get. Sorry, my bloody thank you, Um, they're, they're desperately trying to package up something where brands will come in and, you know, want to take a really big part in it, and that that revenue will filter out to Tonga, Fiji, Japan, etc., in a way that perhaps it doesn't at the moment. Um, I don't know whether the RFU have just laid their cards out and. It's a negotiating. T- I don't know. I really don't know the answer to to, to that question. Um, it just seems that the game is all over the place at the moment. It really has got some fundamental challenges um, that it's in desperate need to address. And you know, you've got con- the concussion story that's come out this week, which is just you know, it's just desperate. Um, you know, you've got the horrendous incident with Pablo Matera last week. You've got Super Rugby breaking up. You've got um you know all the unions financially cash I mean I don't I'm trying to you know I'm an upbeat kind of guy but the game just somebody somewhere needs to press control alt delete and let's start again and let's build a property that's sustainable and um my personal view is that we're just putting sellotape on sellotape at the moment and it's it just frustrates me enormously but yay let's let's get yeah, stuck um, into it.
2: you briefly touched on our next point which was the obviously the head injuries and thing with steve thompson coming out and saying that he can he can't remember any of the 2003 world cup yeah what can you obviously this could have major repercussions on the future of the game if obviously yeah. since then head injuries dealt with a lot more seriously there's a lot more protocols but obviously it's still to yeah. be a problem what yeah. do you see coming into effect from that
0: um I, I Well, funny enough, it links back to that last answer. I mean, this sort of sounds fairly dramatic, but reading between the lines, the, the case that these seven players have got, and I think a lot of others will come out and join them, um, it's fairly substantial. And I think that, you know, if it comes to pass that what, what they are alleging has happened you are looking at governing bodies and world rugby having some seriously big liabilities and that will leave some, I mean, just, you know, the game's got no money in it at the moment. Uh, speculating and, and and that's never a very useful thing to do, but speculating if, if world rugby and the RFU and the Welsh rugby union, and it grows out there are all liable. I mean, I, I, I think the game in its current form is, will not continue in its, will not continue and i think that that is desperately sad but possibly also an opportunity i mean we've got money coming in through cvc and other you know vcs who are out there you know if you end up with bankrupt governing bodies um i don't think rugby will disappear but i think the way that it's organized the ownership of it etc is up for grabs um and again, I, this is pure speculation. I, I, I think it, I think I say that partly because I'm just so frustrated with the lack of progress in the sport at the moment. Um, and maybe this is an opportunity. I mean, I, d- I don't want to link what is a very, very sad set of circumstances into an opportunity. But, um, you know, I did something with Steve Thompson. Um, I think it was the Six Nations, actually. I mean, a phenomenal guy, just the most extraordinary story. I mean, he is someone who lives for today and really doesn't worry about tomorrow. And he's... You know, as a player, he was pretty on the edge. He's he retired. He came back. He retired again. He went to Dubai on a whim and sort of made a whole lot of money. And now I think he lost it all. And now he's a water mains pipe layer in the north of England. I mean, it's just an extraordinary story, Um, but it's it's a desperately sad one. And I think he was playing in an era where it was a it was fairly cavalier. You know, they, these guys were early days of professional rugby it was break yourself to the you know to the nth degree in order to find those marginal gains or whatever it was and you know it's very sad that he's suffered the consequences the other guy actually found out Alex Popham who I think is is very sadly in an even worse condition um again just the most fabulous bloke really 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 lovely guy and um you know they will get a huge amount of support around them um in in their case so I, I don't know where it nets out, and it may be that the, the you know the fine comes and it's paid, and there's an insurance policy or whatever it might be, and and the game carries on. But I think if it's if it's a significant hole in the 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 the, the, the governing bodies are hit for, then I think the game will fundamentally change in terms of its governance.
2: I think one area they've got to really worry about it must be the grassroots game, though, because if you yeah. see stories of this coming out, is that's me parents not wanting their kids to play, kids not wanting to play. It's just, it could yeah. fundamentally be the end of like the next generation.
0: Yeah. And I think you couple that with COVID and the fact that every rugby club is going to be cut and cut and shut for 18 months. And um, the game has got, you know, I'm, yeah, I want to be upbeat and, and tell you happy stories, but the game has got some serious, serious problems at the moment. Um, and that doesn't mean that there aren't, you know, often, often in chaos as opportunity. And I think, you know, I, I think rugby, you know, the Rugby World Cup in Japan last year was, absolutely incredible it was just the most fantastic spectacle and rugby at that level and when it's played at that level is just intoxicating you know it's just a really 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 gladiatorial phenomenal event but there is too much rugby at this point in time which doesn't resonate and there is too much damage being done in those games you know i always think the administrators who recognize that less is more are the administrators who win. I mean, the NFL season is 25 minutes long and that's it. But everybody stops to watch it. You know, we've got rugby, you know, coming out of every single channel. And, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a rugby fan. I've got no interest in watching the Pro 14. I watch half a dozen games of Premiership rugby because it's just constantly falling out at you. What I want to do is I want to stop to watch the big events. I want to watch England All Blacks and I want to go on a Lions tour. You know, we need to, we need to filter, condense and you know, refine the product and not just, just think that more rugby is the answer to all of this. Let's make a better product, a more you know, exclusive product, and um and and chart, you know, get 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 more from it and for it as a result.
1: I guess recently so the team of the decade came out and you had the honor of being a part of sort of the ceremony. Um I guess what were your thoughts on the team of the decade?
0: Um that's a very good question. So I didn't spend too long actually looking at it. Um, I think... Um,
1: it's very Southern Hemisphere dominated, isn't it? Yeah,
0: so, and I can see why. I mean, th- these teams of the decade, they're always based around World Cups. And, you know, pl- yeah. players are given the status of greatness based on whether they lift the WebLS trophy or not. And that instantly is going to elevate Kiwis because they they won two in the decade. Yeah. Um, it's really, really hard. I, I, you know, th- these things are there to be shot at and you can't, I actually remember talking to the, to the guys at World Rugby before it was announced and just said, I hope you guys are going to put tin hats on as soon as this goes live, because everybody's going to have a complaint about it. I mean, you know, O'Driscoll gets in, but retired in 2014. Um, you know, why does that therefore discount Maro who's been arguably the best player in the Northern hemisphere for the last four years? It's, it's, um, it's really, really difficult. I think um, I think you will always struggle to pick a 15 where everyone goes, hey, great, yeah, we unanimously agree. I mean, these things are built for reaction. Um, I think Jonathan Davis of Wales was unbelievably unlucky not to get in. You know, he's been on a winning Lions tour in Australia, man of the series in 2017, World Cup semi-final. Um, you know, I, I think he'd have a great shout on that that 13 jersey. Um yeah, I mean, it's, the, the the answer is in the question. These things are built for debate, and um, I, I don't think you'll ever find an answer which makes everybody satisfied.
2: I think one position which brought up a lot of debate, and some people thought it was very well deserved and refreshing to see Sergio Priest at number eight, and others thought because he played obviously. How can an you amazing... How can
0: you leave out Kieran Reed? Exactly. Yeah, I mean, Sergio, great man, talisman. Definitely didn't play his best rugby between two thousand and ten and two thousand and. And 19, um, you know, Kieran Reid, back to back World Cups, redefined the role of a number eight, um, of the All Blacks with an extraordinary win percentage. I mean, I actually thought as well, Aaron Smith at nine was unlucky. I mean, Connor Murray, brilliant, you know, led Ireland to, well, not led, but, but featured for Ireland in a couple of over the All Blacks. But and I suppose there's a grand slam in there as well. But Aaron Smith is just, just the heartbeat of that New Zealand side we could debate it for hours i don't think we'd get any anywhere and, and um yeah i'm <laughs> not sure we'd, we'd come up with an answer but hey that's the fun of it
1: who um who do you think deserves coach of the decade for that team um
0: honestly i'd go gatland okay i think um i think a winning series in australia and a drawn series in new zealand um and i just think what he achieved with Wales was utterly extraordinary. Um, and, you know, Wayne Pivak is a great coach, but we are seeing the Gatland impact now. Uh, and it's always going to be impossible for the coach that comes in. It's like, you know, Moy's going in after Sir Alex Ferguson. You know, it's just, just a poison chalice to pick up. But I think Gatland just has an extraordinary knack of, getting the most out of, out of teams he coaches. Although he's not had a great time with the Chiefs recently. But, you know, Wasps, um, Lions, Wales, he just is a man who makes teams fire. And often I think that players don't really know why they're firing, but it just is that Gatland factor. Um, you know, Hanson is a great coach, but, you know, you're coaching the All Blacks. You've got the resources there that are um, are extensive. I think Eddie Jones gets gets pretty close to it um the turnaround he's done with England but he's only had four years well actually no Eddie Jones would be up there with Japan as well of course. Japan, yeah. um but I I think I just think I just think the success that Gatland's had at the very very top table um probably means that he would shade it
2: yeah well Alex thanks so much we don't want to take up too much more time I'm just gonna ask one final question there's gonna be a bit of advice for any listener here because our main target probably under 20 year olds, if they want to get yeah. into broadcasting and sports broadcasting, what piece of advice would you give them?
0: Um two bits. One is you would be you will be gobsmacked how manners and politeness helps. And it, it's 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 an extraordinary thing. I remember I actually got my job on Sky Sports News because when they were doing screen tests, I was was the only one that stood up when the female director walked in. And that's a really, you know, I'd say it to you guys, it just, in this day and age, it's just a really, really, it doesn't cost anything, I know, but it just really fucking helps sometimes. In fact, let me me do that without swearing, because that's kind of, um, it doesn't really work. It really helps, manners really help. And, And the reason I say that is if you look after who, if you are polite to the people, on the way up, you never you never know when you might well be back on the way down again. So just look after the people around you, be a really decent person, gets you gets you going. And the second thing about getting into it um, is you've got to have a passion for it. I think fundamentally in broadcasting, you, you have to really care about the subject matter that you talk about. I would never have made it in music. I would never have made it in film because I don't care about film in the way that I get up at 4 a.m. We used to get up at 4 a.m. to watch Southern Hemisphere Rugby. If you have a passion for a subject, that normally means that you've got a knowledge that goes with it. And that means that you will survive when the pressure comes on because you're comfortable, you're excited, you're you're engaged in that subject matter. Um, so if you want to get into broadcasting, pick your passion and, and go for it down that route first. Don't go into broadcasting, say, I want to be a broadcaster. What is it that I can talk about? Mm. Because there will be 100 people in front of you. Who are broadcasting that thing because they genuinely care about it, um, and just get going. Just get them. And what you guys are doing here is absolutely fantastic. You know, you have to start. You have to build on it. You have to write letters to every organization or emails uh, to every organization that that you know you're interested in. Um, and the final thing is, you just just don't give up you know I'm afraid the nature of the beast is that there's a there's a fair amount of re- rejection around it's a, it's a lot of fun it's a really great job to be involved in and that means a lot of people want to do it um so you've got to persevere so be polite be passionate and persevere there you go some three p's who knew
1: well thank you Alex for joining us today um obviously doing very well as a presenter yourself so it was a pretty <laughs> fascinating talk for Freddie and I just to sort of you know listen to i guess someone who's super successful off the field that we're trying to get into but so thank you and uh happy christmas for all the fans listening out there it's boxing day today so yeah hopefully 2021 is a much better year
0: fingers crossed thanks guys great to chat good luck to both of you and um yeah happy new year to all your listeners cheers
1: thank thank you. you